2: Conspiracy Unlimited
1: with Richard Serrett.
0: On this episode, a former Catholic nun, now a whistleblower, describes how the Jesuit order is turning monasteries into MKUltra mind control operations.
2: I did some research and found out there's a guy named J.P. DeGrace who's buried on the grounds who basically funded the building of the monastery, and he was uh, basically involved in Project Paperclip, getting to safety those Germans involved in mind control experiments and bringing them over to the United States. So he was involved in Project Paperclip and MKUltra.
0: The Horrible Movie Podcast is a weekly show hosted by Jack Altermat. Jack invites a guest who brings... Jack invites a guest who brings a horrible theater-released movie to dissect. Jack and his guests take you through the highs and lows of the movie and what makes it horrible. New movies, older movies, cult classics, or box office busts. No movie is spared or safe from the Horrible Movie Podcast. It's a fun show with clean language, and it's available through Spreaker.com, Apple Podcasts, StudioDNA.media, and everywhere you get your podcasts. Remember, just because it's from Hollywood doesn't mean it isn't horrible.
1: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres, Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption. The secret machinations of powerful elites, revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Zeret. Hey,
0: welcome to your Monday. Now this past weekend, we drove up into the mountains to visit my mother-in-law's Horyo, or village. It's called Lada. And it's way up there, I mean way up there. They were having a wine festival, so we piled into our Nissan Micra and headed up there starting around nine o'clock at night. And the roads into the Taito Mountains are narrow switchback goat paths, basically. And uh, overhead was this glorious uh, almost full moon, about 99%, the the next night was a full moon. And uh, it was guiding our path. So we got up to the Horyo and, and hard to believe so many people were there in such a remote location. Absolutely breathtaking. Cobblestone streets, and many of the houses have been abandoned. So we're walking the streets under the moonlight, and the mighty Aphrodite tried to imagine my mother-in-law there as a child in the 1930s. And at the bottom of the village is a tiny sports field, and we heard the music and the, the cheering and the laughter. Uh, coming from uh, the, the the bottom uh, of the village. And so we made our way down into this little sports field. And there they were. Hundreds of people had gathered to drink wine and eat roast pork. And the dancers were wearing their traditional uh, dress of the hordeo. And of course, the mighty Aphrodite and both my children joined in and danced. Uh, they, they're becoming quite accomplished Greek dancers, actually. They certainly don't get it from me, I'll tell you that much. I was born with three left feet. On the way down the mountain, everyone was asleep in the back seat, and the gas light came on, and I was quietly worried, uh, panicked actually, that we were going to run out of gas before we made it down off the mountain. And luckily, I was able to coast pretty much the entire way. I, I was pretty much riding the brake pedal all the way down. Meanwhile, I watched foxes cross the road in front of me and saw the occasional bat fly by, and I heard a few owls. I tell you, it's it's, it's almost mystical up there. It's incredibly enchanting. I love the mountains. Uh, the first time I drove up into the Taito Mountains during my first visit to Greece in 2011, I, I told the mighty Aphrodite immediately I was so enchanted. I said, I want to live here and I want to die here. I never felt more at peace uh, or closer to God, quite frankly. Now, Sister Carrie Berner felt very close to God beginning at age nine. She converted to Catholicism at 17 and then spent many years as a nun, serving peacefully within the Catholic Church. That is, until she was sexually assaulted by church clergy. After that experience, she became a whistleblower in search for justice and truth. Her efforts to expose evil in the Roman Church has led to no fewer than 10 attempts on her life between 2011 and 2016. And she's here to discuss a sinister plot involving the Jesuit order and the U.S. government involving population control and the introduction of destructive nanotechnology into food distribution systems and other products. Carrie Burner, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you?
2: Excellent. Thank you so much for having me.
0: My pleasure. So let's start with a little bit of a a history lesson here. You became a Catholic at the age of 17 and uh, your intent was to become a monastic, correct?
2: That's correct. Yes. So I converted and, uh, in high school and it was hilarious because when I, we had a bus stop and the bus stop was right at a church and I happened to bump into the priest on the way to get out to the bus. And I said, you know, I want to become a nun. And he laughs. He says, do you come here to church? I said, no, we go to the Grange hall. (laughs) So I wasn't even Catholic. And he said, well, uh, you do have to become Catholic first. And I said, well, after school, I have 15 minutes. So he's like, no, 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 it doesn't work like that. So bottom line is I, um, you know, converted, went through the Rite of Christian Initiation for for adults. And immediately after my conversion, maybe a month after my graduation from high school, I went straight away into a convent. And that was in Still River, Massachusetts, St. Benedict Center. And I was there for approximately... I I loved it. It was Latin. We did all the tridentine, you know, Latin masses and things like that. So all that sort of stuff for me was really, you know, bells and whistles, smells and bells. That was it. It was um, attractive.
0: And if if I could just interject at, at the age of 17, why were you so convinced that you wanted to become a nun?
2: Okay. That's interesting. Well, when I was nine, we were brought up kind of in a Protestant sentiment. We didn't necessarily have a real religious praxis or, you know, nothing like that. It was, uh, I had, you know, an experience where Christ visited me. I think I was like nine years old. And of course I didn't know much. I didn't read the Bible. I didn't, I wasn't reared very well in belief. So I, uh, encountered Christ in, I guess a vision or a dream or whatever you want to call it, where he was, it was the night before he was going to be crucified. And I was in this locked away. It was like a prison underneath and he was chained. And I went right up to him and I'm like, wait a minute, you're going to be crucified tomorrow. I could help you get (laughs) out of (laughs) here. And the thing that really got me is I didn't understand that Christ was God. I didn't know that. So when I was visiting him, I was trying to help him. But as soon as I put my hand, my hand on his leg, I was like, oh, my God, this is God. This is God. My so this word. was
0: that's a powerful vision for a nine year old.
2: It, it was it was very intense. And I had others following after that. But that was the main one that really captured me. And I was like, whoever that is, that's the one I want to marry. Quote right. unquote.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. That's that's why. they. Uh, well, you, you certainly then came by your calling. Honestly, my word. Um, so, but obviously this did not uh, play out as you had intended. You had a very tragic, uh, situation unfold while you were, um, at an abbey in Massachusetts.
2: Yes. So I basically spent about, give or take five years, you can go to my website, website, clergyvictim.com. And my book is there for free download for now. It's up there for free. And it's, um. Called Divine Challenge. And that gets into my story up until 2008. So basically, what happened was with regards to the four or five, four and a half, five years, or however long it was, you guys can get all the data and the perfect details on timelines. I'm kind of mixing up timelines a lot. Uh, but basically, it was approximately five years I was in this convent, and I had the blessing of my mother superior, Mother Teresa Benaway, to go into pursuing canon by canon law 603 there's a provision for hermits people who want to become hermits share in the lifestyle where you live close by to a church and you attend the the frequent the liturgies but then you live your life of prayer and work in spiritual unity with the world and the church in that manner so my expression of love would be to pray for everybody and that was that's what i was heading to do
0: eight to ten hours a day
2: Yes, absolutely. Yes, that was my greatest bliss in the world. I felt the most un, the unconditional love was deep in mystical experiences and all this other stuff. And I was just captured by it. So uh, I went to St. Joseph's Abbey. This was at the point at which you have, I, you know, as a candidate, you have to live the life for X amount of time. And then you, by you living the life, you after probably about six years, that's when you would go in for your final vows with the bishop. So I started to live this life, and I had the support of St. Joseph's Abbey's community, um, and the, the the priests and the monks, and some of them, you know, weren't for me, and the others were. And the ones that were was so supportive; they handed me piles and piles of books and said, "Well, this is what a novice would read." Boom! And he, you know, give me this huge pile of books, and I was just eating it all up. You know, the the desert fathers and mothers and so forth. So after uh this study you know i um ended up engaging in and you know the monastery embraced me as like a family you know and i was going to you know dinners every night thursday nights with brother philippe macram and so forth and so what happened was after two and a half years because you know we have what a very short amount of time to cover so i'm going to get right into it um after two and a half years, I was in a meeting with a priest, Father Joseph Kong, during my retreat at St. Joseph's Abbey. They opened their doors for retreat for women at the time. And uh, the priest opens up the meeting with, you know, what is it, the Song of Song, chapter 1, verse 12. You know, the lover is like, you know, the bundle of myrrh between my breasts and all this breast talk and I'm thinking well I wasn't in a judgmental space at all I was just like okay well maybe there's a mystical side to all this that I'm not really grasping but you know that he's the the teacher and I'm the one learning so we spent maybe an hour and a half two hours together all that details in my book like I said clergyvictim.com and the priest essentially I go to confession take advantage of the sacrament and then we part ways In in the midst of me grabbing my books I'm going to pick up my books off the table he lunges out and grabs my left breast and it was very quick it wasn't like he was taking a long time it was like very fast so he says don't tell anyone about this and i said well no no the meetings are done you know and he just zipped right out of the room he immediately left and so i waited for my my closest friend who's brother philippe macram he was uh the monk at saint joseph's abbey and i got together and talked with him and he basically we talked till three in the morning And he basically said, you know, don't bring this matter forward. This could be a test. Uh, You know, and bottom line is there's a lot of things that happen at this monastery that, you know, you essentially, you know, you're coming to know about. Because there were monks that were coming to me, jumping over the wall, weeping on my shoulder, asking if I could be their spiritual director. And I'm only in my 20s. And so I got to learn a lot about things that were happening, like real sexual, you know, unbelievable stuff that was happening.
0: At the hands of the same priest?
2: Uh, Yes, I actually learned through another nun uh, in Petersham, Massachusetts, uh, St. Scholastica's Priory, Sister Mara Malouf. Bottom line, she says, yeah, another one was victimized the same way. And I said, wait a minute. That means I have to do something about this. So that was uh, when I tried to involve a priest and keep it in-house, but it didn't, couldn't stay in-house.
0: No, typically Uh, as they, they circle the wagons.
2: Yes, they did. Yes, they did. So then we went, eventually it all ended up where I tried to resolve it with the Abbey, talked to Father Isaac. It didn't work out. He just got more and more aggressive and, you know, tried to undermine my credibility and it just got worse and worse. And to the degree, I mean, they were literally putting up cameras outside of their chapel to see if I would show up. And I did. I, I was very honest during the uh, the testimony. I actually had to testify on behalf of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts as a victim and uh, survivor of this sort of thing. And so it went from really bad to worse, really bad. And so uh, we went through the court case, I lost. I was very honest on the stand. I was trying to explain and I realized the jury had no comprehension of any of this stuff, what was going on. Uh, They were not well schooled in canon law, so they had no understanding what I was trying to do. So I basically lose the the trial. This was Commonwealth versus Joseph Chukong. All those records, again, are on the clergyvictim.com website. So then I fight with the, um, to try to bring this matter you know, the attention to the matter that Attorney Murata, who was representing the Commonwealth, foiled the case on purpose. And I talked to professors of universities and they said, absolutely. Then I found out a bigger conspiracy that the Diocese of Worcester was the one controlling the DA's office. And that, you know, there was a lot of things. My situation happened with the, the priest assault, sexual assaulting me in 2001, August 23rd. And so basically all this the the story started to hit with the sexual abuse crisis coming out in the Boston papers in 2002. So then, uh, I at this point started to help other victim survivors of clergy abuse. I joined survivors network for those abused by priests, and I went through seven years of trying to help people. And I realized this is much bigger. This doesn't just stay at a sexual abuse situation. This goes into serial, you know, abuse. And the bottom line is, when I realized Vatican was was basically playing into the politics, into Massachusetts politics, then I looked into the bigger pictures. Um, I was connected to Leo Zagami, who called me asking me for help in 2008. Uh, I was on the show for Greg Szymanski. and then very soon after realizing that the that the Vatican was involved, through Vatican versus Alpern, uh, the Alpern versus Vatican Bank. I spoke with the attorney that represented the genocide victims of the Serbian genocide. and These, the these were the course.
0: Serbians living in Croatia uh, during the Second World War. Somewhere between 350,000, 700,000 Serbians, mainly Orthodox, I would presume, Christian Orthodox. Yes,
2: absolutely.
0: Uh, right. Um, yeah. Now, when did you connect the – was it the, the abbey where you were abused that you – believe is being run by uh, or is part of MKUltra?
2: Yes. I found this out years later when I was in my study because I couldn't understand how they wouldn't just want to do the right thing. And I wasn't even asking for money. I was just saying, listen, take the priest away from women. You know, I did some research and found out there's a guy named J.P. de Grace who's buried on the grounds who basically funded the building of the monastery. He's actually commemorated on the altar at the Abbey w- along with his wife. And he was uh, basically <laughs> if we could get into this in more detail at another point but the essence of it is he was involved in Project Paperclip getting to safety those Germans involved in mind control experiments. And bringing them over to the United States, so he was involved in Project Paperclip and MK Ultra, and he was involved. You know, there's chemical programs he was. I believe he was involved in because there's I, enough data. How do, how do we
0: How do we know that he was involved in Operation Paperclip, where they were exfiltrating uh, Nazis into the United States? How is, do we have document documents on that? How do we know?
2: I actually, you know what? I'm gonna post it to my website. It's gonna say who is Peter J. Peter Grace, and I'm gonna post that up. But there's a lot of intelligence records. There's several other websites that are bringing all this together, and this is going on. The Abbey was built in the 1950s, so there was a several stories and and you know uh, data that was collected on him from the intelligence sources.
0: Hey, this is Tony Merkel, host of The Confessionals, a blog talk radio podcast that brings you weekly interviews with eyewitness accounts of strange and unexplained events. From paranormal activity to UFO encounters to Bigfoot sightings, step into The Confessionals as we explore mysterious real-life stories. Check us out on your favorite podcast app or theconfessionalspodcast.com. And many thanks to Conspiracy Unlimited for having me on the air.
1: I'll see you all on The Confessionals. (laughs) The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then, it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again. I know what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Sister Carrie
0: Burner, a.k.a. the nun with the gun, is here talking about the Jesuit order, MKUltra, and non-domestic quell. How are they... Implementing MK Ultra at the Abbey. Do you think that the sexual uh, abuse is is part of this in order to cause a, a sort of a dissociative disorder in their victims with trauma?
2: Yes, I believe. From now, when I left, when the the monastery, when we went through the case, and I was going on to the state house to try to get laws changed for the statute of limitations attorney, you know, Stobierski and others approached me and asked me to be, to, to help them behind the scenes with other victims. And I did. And so in the course of doing that, I learned more and more and other victims. And it just got more and more. And so I had piles of other people who were going through this. And my case was used as like the, the spearhead of, here's what's going to happen to you. So if, if you come forward, we're going to destroy your name and your credibility. So bottom line, I find out that there's priests literally having a list of who they're going to have sex with. Well, I get to have sex with so-and-so at two and sex with so-and-so at four and cereal. You know, they were using the confession as a means to, to gaining intelligence on that person to see if they were damaged goods. And this, I did hear about, you know, children, but primarily these were, were uh, vulnerable adults that were abused in their childhood. So the priest put himself in the place of, well, let me help you quote unquote and made it even more. It was worse. They, he engaged, these people engaged in serious, uh, you know, satanic practices, urine, menstrual blood. I don't want to get into all that because it's really nasty stuff. But the bottom line is, is uh, this this was there's nothing wholesome about what's going on here. And, and this, then I realized.
0: So this gosh. this particular abbey in in Worcester, Mass, is like MK Ultra Central. Is that the idea?
2: I believe it's one of the hotbeds for it. But it was it's under the surface. Now, not every monk in there is a front for a cover for CIA. Okay, there's a lot of good ones in there, but they just happen, you know, now to really know <laughs> that there was those monks among them, that whoever's in control, meaning the Jesuits and the CIA, absolutely, that they, uh, that there's this was built, you know, by design, you know, for a reason, strategically. And same, if you look into the history of other monasteries, like Mepkin Abbey, that was Henry R. Luce was involved in that. And you study him, and he's got all the, the background into, media and I could get into more detail on that too. but essentially my dealing with this, I after seven years of helping other clergy victims, survivors, I went away to Texas to just get a life of reprieve and find another way to, to, to you know get away from all this stuff. I was totally burnt out. And so, basically, I went to Texas, studied, you know, private law and, and other remedies, and started to do very well. And the FBI contacted me, and wanted to meet. We met in 2012, and they asked me, "Do you believe the Pope owns us all through the collateralization of our birth certificates?"
0: The all fiction.
2: Exactly.
0: Why would they ask that? That's a strange question. I mean, I know there's a great, ba- there's a backstory here, but that just comes, seems to come right out of left field for the FBI to ask you, do you think the Pope owns us all through the all cap fiction, which is another show entirely, but I mean, why would they ask you that?
2: I honestly didn't know. So I didn't answer the question. and I just said, listen, you know, you can look on my Facebook page. You can look on my website. I'm responsible for that. But anything outside of that, I didn't, you know, I didn't do it. So if someone else is writing something, that's that. But I didn't get into it because I didn't know what they really wanted, and it was until about a year and a half or two years later when I had hired a security firm, they looked it up and had access you know, to the record and was able to see, oh, well, gosh, they were trying to hire you because they wanted you to be a CI or a CHS or whatever the language is that they use. Um, I was very proficient in certain administrative remedies and so forth. So. Now, in this aspect, I'm trying to mind my own business, and yet I still see St. Joseph's Abbey looking at my website. I see them downloading things. I see them, and I'm like, well, that's whatever. I guess they're learning. Who knows? Maybe they're going to get something and learn. But no, I end up going into a surgery in 2011, July, and I felt really strange. I had the willies, so I hired a a security to to be there with me. And upon coming out of anesthesia, this was uh, for a polyp and constructive surgery in my nose sinuses because I was having issues breathing. I had vertigo and other symptoms that later I found out for were from microwave symptoms and so forth. But bottom line is after I got out of that surgery, things were strange. I had unknown doctors on my records. I confronted the doctor about it. He said, you need to look into this further through Dr. Wang of some, somewhere else. And I just kept collecting the data because I didn't understand what was going on. I had very strange symptoms, itchy, really big time itchy for five years weeks. And uh, later I found out that that was my body reacting against an infection due to nano infection that was placed in my body during this surgical procedure. So about a year and a half after this July 11 sinus surgery, I'm my body's breaking down. I don't understand what's happening and I wasn't abusing my body. I'm trying to eat as healthy as I could. So uh, then I I have my file, I have an entire file from 2006 regarding my uncle. And so I was helping my uncle years ago, he was in the Air Force, and he was microchipped against his will. And so I actually helped investigate his matter, brought it in front of Congress and, and for six weeks. And the end of that, we found out he wasn't lying, he was telling the truth, and we had the scans from the Amen Clinic, he gave me power of attorney so I could talk to the doctors, and. You know, uh, Amen Clinic denied it. But when we talked to the VA in Puerto Rico, they were confirming it. Oh, yeah, your uncle's not crazy. This is really happening to him. And many, many other veterans go through this. So being, I had being this. Being
0: chipped with an RFID chip?
2: That's to, right. To and do other what? Chi-
0: to do what with them? To track them? To, to, to
2: track and cause him harm, physical, you know, torture, you know. And, and so. There, there was a lot of symptoms he was going through. And so I said, listen, you gotta go and connect with a group of others that are going through this. I found this guy named James Walbert who was pioneering helping people at the time. And so we determined, uncle, there is no help at this point. You're gonna have to leave the country and just try to live a good life because they're, they're just grilling you and there's no way. We tried through government channels to help you. So your uncle is-
0: was a your uncle was a targeted individual. We're talking what, electronic harassment? and torture
2: yes absolutely but with
0: you they were using nanotechnology that's Uh, right how does that work
2: well the technology changed over the years so they don't do they don't they're not doing the microchipping they're using the now let me just bridge the gap because with my uncle's file when I dug his out and I was looking at the symptoms he was going through I thought the same. I was like, well, maybe something fishy is going on with me. So I called James Walbert, and we talked. And he said, you know what? Buy a JM20 Pro. I bought it, and it rendered a signal. And I said, uh-uh, this is not happening to me. So he's like, uh, no, it is happening. And I said, okay, I'm going to go get tested by a professional. This machine or equipment probably is broken because I bought it from eBay. So I go to Melinda Kidder, Columbia Investigations. We get, I get a test, and it renders – microteslas and other signatures of signals, which I later find out through my intelligence contacts that the signal that was in the in my head and other parts of my body, it uh, basically was connected through Lockheed Martin to a drone, and I gave the key signatures over to someone in in very proficient, you know, uh, someone who has access to, to certain data. And they called me and let me know, yeah, that's connected to, they were tracking me and using it to, to cause me harm. Now, here's the thing. My data, that if I didn't have my uncle situation happen, I would never have known what to do in a situation like this. So I went immediately after Melinda Kidder, straight to, they activated me when I was on my way to Melinda Kidder, straight to California.
0: Well, who, who is Melinda Kidder?
2: Oh, sorry. She's a private investigator who's proficient in TSCM uh, measures. So I went from there because she recommended it, Melinda, to the toxicologist, Hildegard Staniger. I met with uh, Staniger, and she says, oh, yeah, the the Vatican, the Jesuits are doing this. It's because of your commitment to God, and you obviously know things that you shouldn't know. And I'm like, I don't know anything. (laughs) And so she basically said, this is nanotech. It's the newer form of it's It 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 does what microchips do, but it's sneakier. It's it's and I said, listen, all this is over my head. I I gave her my debit card. Take whatever you need off of this thing. What do I need to do? And let's just fix this. I said I I said is anyone has anyone ever been fixed of this? She said yes, but they took a hundred million dollars, and she gave me the lawyer to go see. And I looked into the lawyer. And I realized he was a Jesuit. And I said, I can't do it. I can't go to him. That's a conflict of interest. And furthermore, I don't know if this lawyer is giving the information back to the Jesuits so they can perfect their technology. This was Daniel P. Sheehan. I'm not saying the man is evil. I'm just saying that I had a serious concern. So at this point. I gathered, you know, we did the toxicological dysfunctional analysis and then the $14,000 whatever it was, the um, FTIR and the, uh, the other Raymond spectroscopy, and that shows you what's at the, comp- the composition level of the samples that were coming out of my body, uh, that in fact this was military-grade nanotechnology, innovative and designer. These were, I had nine attempts on my life from 2011 all the way up to Donald Trump took office. And so
0: why did it stop with Donald Trump in office?
2: Well, I sent Donald Trump packages, uh, while he was on his campaign trail. And, um, I didn't know if it was getting to him, but then someone else in the intelligence community sent a package and it made it and within five days or, or two weeks of his inauguration, I was completely no no longer bothered by it. Cause they were using NAVs, you know, nano air vehicles to dispense uh, harmful, you know, deadly toxins to me. They would, you know, I, I literally have the evidence. It's so thick. It's, it's a humongous book of evidence, but, um,
0: uh, just because we, we we're tight for time here and I I'd like to do a part two and maybe who knows a part three, four, and five, but let, let me just ask you very quickly, because this is a, this is important, this document, this non-domestic quell, which relates to the use of this nanotechnology to infect the, the U S population. What is this document? How did you find it?
2: Excellent. Okay. Uh, thanks for bringing this up. The domestic well. Uh, someone in, I looked it up. I found this within the window, like a week period. It was on a blog. And then someone in the intelligence community sent it to me. I was like, oh, this is real. So I, I downloaded the documents within, like, I made an anonymous post to their thread to show them there's a remedy for this. They went in and threatened a guy and removed the documents and said, this is a hoax. And, of course, I have all the screen captures to prove all this stuff because I'm, I'm very good at keeping records. But nanodomestic quell is basically a, um, a program that's Department of Defense under Obama's regime here, okay, where uh, it says here, total, current total infection rates for United States general population is 87.2%. And it goes on, projected infection for general U.S. population by January 2014 is estimated to reach 98%. Obviously, it's higher now. Total infection goes for ages 18 and above may reach 99%. Uh, DTFN projects dispersal mediums will require additional resources for phase four of nanodomestic quell. DTFN recommends an increase in the following medium inflows and outflows specific to liquid dispersal, and it gives percentages. Pepsi, Cola, Nestle, Chicago, Atlanta, Municipal, Danone, Coca-Cola, Los Angeles, and Seattle, Municipal. Dispersal outflows have... Sorry, shown
0: Municipal. Sig- you mean as in Municipal Water Supply?
2: Yes, absolutely.
0: And they're using Coca-Cola and Nestle's infection rates. What, what do they mean by that exactly?
2: Well, nanotechnology is encased by a viral envelope. So when that goes into your body, you have generally people have reactions to this. And but once it goes into the body, the nano actually replicates when being introduced to other forms of energy. It could it could be you know certain light. It could be Uh, radio frequency, microwave, you know, whatever, you know, cell phone towers, it doesn't matter. There's so many ways you can get this stuff to replicate in your body. So to me, this means this is dispersal outflows. have shown significant improvement. So obviously we know someone took over. This to me is indication that there's, that, that our country, you know, our armed forces were taken over like K. Griggs says, and to me, I I believe it's the Jesuits who are doing this. Okay. Um, and so bottom line, it says no further recommendations have been submitted for phase five and expected update to outflow estimated rates will be forthcoming before phase five. And I believe the initialization of phase five is essentially that they're introducing us to, you know, 5G and, and terahertz and other signals to get this stuff to replicate more quickly into the body.
0: So we're in phase four and phase five is the final phase. and. I-
2: I think we're in phase five now. We're in phase yeah, five. This,
0: and what, what yeah, is this, the, what's the objective? What's the objective?
2: Okay, bottom line is to take over, to tether us to AI systems, to take over the human biological systems so that we no longer can think for ourselves, we're controlled. And it's highly toxic to the body, so it breaks down the body. And ultimately, it's to the decimation of the human race, really, or mankind's race. You know.
0: Depopulation, massive depopulation.
2: That's right. Yeah, genocide.
0: Hmm. Well, (laughs) so how do we, I mean, on that happy note, how do we, how do we fight back? How do we remedy this?
2: Okay. First, if you know, the stuff that I was going through regarding the nanotech, that stuff is primarily military grade. Most people are not going to come in contact with that. Okay. This was set up really purposely to kill me within a space of 30 to 45 days and that's just, you know, that's the fancy stuff. The stuff that others are being, the food grades, you know, material, the nano, we have remedies for that. For, for those who are eating Nestle and they're concerned, and okay, no problem, you can still clean that out of your body. Go to www.augmentinforce.com. Go to Tony Pantalaresco's YouTube videos. You can clean your, yourself and your pets. You can make things and mitigate those effects. Now, we've also uh, – you know, while I was on the run, uh, we I was able through attorneys to get the mark no nano, uh, no nano certifications on such products such as food, beverages, vitamins, nutritional supplements, clothing, textiles, soaps, shampoos, sunscreens, fragrances, moisturizers, and pet products. Certification mark is to be used by persons or businesses authorized. By the certifiers intended to certify the goods provided do not contain any engineered biomolecules, non-organic or toxic ingredient. So there's remedies for this. We're working on launching all this stuff. Uh, I'm just still, you know, coming off of five and a half years being on the run and learning how to acclimate, you know, to normal, you know, uh, life.
0: So you you want to get you want to get uh, non nano uh, labels. On foods that are that are free from, from this nanotechnology, but I mean, we saw what happened in the state of California when they tried to get GMO labeling. It just doesn't fly.
2: That's right, and there's a design for that. In European countries, they allow this. They they'll give it. You know, they'll put it on the label, no nano, right? Uh, uh, or if there is nano ingredients, they have to put it on by law. Uh, but we, America, is being, you know, I believe targeted. By, by the Vatican, through the Jesuits, their military arm, and other military orders to subjugate us. Because we're the, we're, the, we're the bastion of freedom. You know, America is it. So if you can get us and quell us, like through nano-domestic quell, then, uh, you know, what's left, you know? So the, the the good part is, is people are waking up. And there there's so many people in intelligence that are waking up to this, and they're not going to put up with it. Now, I'm not a, about you know, uh, prejudicing Catholics. Roman Catholics are just regular people, but the intelligence community is fully aware that there's the the Eastern and the Western side of the Jesuits, and they have their own little thing going on. And um, so there are remedies, and waking up is the key, and that's what is happening, and that that gives me a lot of hope because obviously I'm still breathing for a reason. I'm still here. I did forgive all these people that have done this, but now we're talking at a whole other level of genocide. To me, the sexual abuse endemic in the Catholic Church is nothing more than an indication we've been military—America uh, was uh, conquered militarily. This, that's what happens in war. When you go to war battlefields, rape is, is just the, the prelude to genocide. It's the prelude to that. And there's documents that go into that from the U.N. I think this is from the genocide studies and prevention.
0: Right. Uh, just very quickly, a uh, final note on the the non-domestic quell document. How, how yes. can we how do we know how do we gauge its veracity? How do we know that's a real declassified or was it declassified? How do I mean how do we know this is real?
2: You know, if, if there was if there was all right, if you look at Coca-Cola's website it says that they they do not negate the fact that they use nanotech in there. I've looked up you know others and this is, there is so much documentation out that evidences. You can even go to the WikiLeaks and go and type in there. Do nano search nano domestic fall or nano food and foods, and you'll see. I don't know if nano domestic fall will be on the WikiLeaks. I would expect it would. I mean, uh, but you can do the research and find out. All I know is they tried to kill me because of my having these documents since 2013.
0: Carrie, give us uh, your website again.
2: Of course. It's www.clergyvictim.com, and that's where Transforming Victims into Victors.
0: All right. We will uh, talk again, I hope, and soon. Carrie, thank you so much for this.
2: It's been a pleasure, and God bless you.
0: God bless. Okay, before I say goodnight to the moon over Messenia, I'm going to fill you in on what's in store on episode 111.
2: They were calling it Helter Skelter.
1: The history of rock and roll is littered with suspicious deaths and the unexplainable. The
2: Beatles telling him that there was going to be this race war.
1: Lennon, Hendrix, Presley, Jim Morrison. The truth told by the experts and the people there. Revelations that will blow yeah, don't your don't mind. That's the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone with Richard Serrett. Listen and subscribe at Apple Podcast and Google Play.
0: Coming up, the director of an explosive documentary on the Vatican joins me for the first of a two-part series on The Third Secret of Fatima. Until next time, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now.
1: A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now.